You know, as we go through the month of December, uh, we're going to look into a passage in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And in Isaiah 9, there's five descriptors or words that are used to describe who Jesus is. And these words were uttered prophetically hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And the text says, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. You know, the words that we use to describe things are quite powerful. I can remember working at a restaurant one time uh, back in Ontario, and we had a famous sprinter, then famous sprinter, Donovan Bailey, come in to eat at our restaurant. And social media was a brand new thing. And so we were all excited as a staff because he was going to then use words to describe for other people what our restaurant was like. And so we hung on his every word as if he was a professional food critic eating. And so we thought, what's he going to say with his steak? And then we realized, yeah, we're not going to find out. Yelp hadn't been invented yet. So his words had no power. But think about the power that words have when someone describes something to you. So for example, a movie on opening weekend, when someone says to you, oh, how was it? And they say, it was amazing, it was wonderful. You're more likely to think, well, maybe I should go to that movie. Or if somebody that you know and trust on Facebook says, well, it was kind of boring, then you skip it, simply because of the words that they used to describe their experience. Words are powerful. When someone gives a recommendation about someone, or maybe a service provider that they've been to, if they use words like, oh, that's a great place, or that person is so kind, or generous, or trustworthy, or truthful, they're reflecting actually not only about their own experience, but they're talking, if they use that kind of language, about the character of the person who is represented in that. Book of Proverbs reminds us that a good name is harder to get and also easier to lose than great riches. And so when you ask the question, what is, what's in a name? When you call someone something, when Isaiah says of Jesus, he shall be called wonderful, why are these five names given to Jesus? And why are they so important? What do they actually have to do with our lives in 2016? Well, in the Bible, when someone is named something, it's incredibly rich with meaning, so much so that sometimes in the Bible, people's names would get changed to reflect an aspect of their character. So Abram's name was changed to Abraham, meaning the father of many. Or we think about Jacob, whose name meant heel grabber or schemer or deceiver, and his name was changed to Israel, which means the one who wrestles with God. In the New Testament, we have examples of people's names getting changed to embody a new significance for them. Someone like Simon, who gets his name changed to Peter, which means rock or stone, as he goes from being this impulsive person to being a pillar in the early Christian movement. And Canadian New Testament scholar Richard Longnecker notes that in the scriptures, when someone's name, it doesn't just signify or identify or distinguish them. In the Bible, it's meant to identify some aspect of the very nature of their being. 
of who they are. And that's why it's, under, it's valuable for us to understand who Jesus is called because it helps us get to know the very nature of his being, who he is. He is wonderful. So look with me at Isaiah chapter 9. And in Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 2, the prophet says, the people who are walking in darkness have seen a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light is going to shine. And Mike will get it shining eventually, I'm sure. In verse 6, a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful. He shall be called Counselor. He shall be called Mighty God. He shall be called Everlasting Father. He shall be called the Prince of Peace. See, these five descriptors are not actually literal names of Jesus. Rather, they describe aspects of his character, who he is, and what he was born to do. And so, we'll look this morning at the first of those names, Wonderful. What does it mean when we say someone is wonderful? Well, if you're wonderful, it kind of means that something is great or someone is great or they are awesome in some way. There, there's positive overtones to that. It's uplifting. It's something that we want to share with other people. I think about, in this instance, uh, Louis Armstrong's optimistic 1967 song, I think to myself, what a wonderful world. <laughs> he wrote this actually in the midst of an incredibly racially charged situation in the United States in the 60s. And here he's laying out this vision for hope and optimism. And it actually, when he wrote it, he sold less than a thousand copies for decades after its initial publication. It became an international hit in the UK, but took a long, long time for that vision to actually work itself out of a wonderful world of people coming together to work beyond their differences to experience a better tomorrow. Maybe when you think about the world wonderful, you might think about the Christmas classic from 1946. It's a wonderful life where the character George Bailey has shown his impact on the lives of those around him and that his contributions have, in fact, made the little town of Bedford Falls and the people in it a more wonderful place, even though he himself wrestles to believe that. But what does it mean when we say Jesus is wonderful? When Isaiah says he shall be called wonderful, what's he saying? I think one of the things that we can note is that in order to be wonderful or have someone describe you as wonderful, you actually have to do wonderful things. In a later text in the book of Isaiah, chapter 25, verse 1, the prophet writes, Lord, I will honor and praise your name, for you are my God. You do such wonderful things. You planned them long ago, and now you have accomplished them. And you see, Isaiah's writing into an incredibly conflicted and troubled situation, both personally and nationally. Remember in verse 2 of Isaiah 9, he says, people are living in great darkness. It's a time of hardship. 
It's a time of incredible difficulty, distance from God and from other people. It's a sense of oppression and being downtrodden and uncertain what to do. Circumstances are not going the way that people imagined that they would. Earlier in chapter 9 of Isaiah, the prophet uses the language of being incredibly hungry and thirsty, stumbling around so hungry for food, so thirsty for water, and so desperate to seek it but not finding it. And here's what struck me as I was reading this passage in Isaiah 9 earlier this week. If you're starving and someone offers you food, both the food and that person immediately to you become wonderful because they've met such a deep need for you. Their actions, their character, immediately because they lift you up and strengthen you in a time of need become wonderful. Friends, our world globally, and many of us here today, face times and situations and places of need, times of relationships that are breaking down, building financial pressures in our lives, parenting situations that are complicated and messy and conflicted and business decisions that we really don't know what to do but have big implications. Multiply that out. Think about your life. Multiply that out thousands upon thousands upon thousands of households in Willoughby and in Clayton and in the neighborhoods in which you live. Think about all of the needs that exist in the neighborhoods and places and spaces where you live. Think about how many people around you have spiritual needs, relational needs, emotional needs, financial needs, some very basic needs that people are hungry and thirsty. Some are longing and looking for something to satisfy their souls. Like Sandy described, he was searching and trying to figure out what do other people have, like Muriel described her friend. They were longing and searching for something that would satisfy, something or someone who was wonderful. And I think this is why the prophet Isaiah uses the word wonderful to describe Jesus. Because wonder isn't just sparked by his birth. It actually continues through the whole of his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. Because Jesus is only wonderful because his story actually doesn't just end with his coming to earth. It doesn't end in the manger. His story is wonderful because of his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus is describing what it is that he came to earth to do, and he uses the prophet Isaiah's words. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released and that the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And it says in the text in Luke 4 that those around Jesus wondered at the words that came from his lips. 
because Jesus set about the ministry that God had given to him to do things that were wonderful, to bring dignity to people who were poor, like our team that's going to be going to Guatemala in March, like you'll have opportunity to do many times throughout this season, to set the captives free, people who are in bondage to things that hold them, to speak liberty, to provide healing to those that are not well. So many of the songs of Christmas speak to these exact same themes. But the question that I asked myself is, how often do I speak about them? How often do you speak about them? Because here's the crux of what I want us to consider this morning. See, if you know something or someone is wonderful, it's very natural for you to tell other people about it. If you find something fantastic, a new coffee shop, a new friendship, a new whatever it is, it's very normal for us, if it's wonderful to us, to just be about the business of naturally reflecting that out to other people. We tweet about it. We give our opinions about it in conversation with other people. So why then, when it comes to talking about Jesus, do we sometimes find it a difficult process? On the one hand, I very much understand that and wrestle with it myself personally because we don't want to be pushy in conversation. You may, not, may feel a fear to answer a question, a difficult one that a friend might have about faith. But on the other hand, if Jesus is wonderful and your experience of him has been wonderful and he's done wonderful things in your life, telling other people about him, like Sandy's friend did for him or like Muriel's friend did for her, isn't a pushy sales job or distasteful. It's just simply sharing naturally about something wonderful that's happened in their lives that they want others to experience as well. Sri Lankan pastor and theologian D.T. Niles says it this way, evangelism is actually really simple. Evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. By which he means, if you're hungry and you've found food that satisfies spiritually, it would be natural to want to tell other people where you got it and how good it is. Well, how do you do this? I think at Christmas provides multiple opportunities for us as people of faith. Maybe you do it with just a simple note in a Christmas card that you write, a personal thought about how your interactions with Jesus and what your relationship to God means to you. Maybe it's an email to a friend that's discouraged, talking about how you found comfort and faith and strength in difficult times. Maybe you post something on Facebook and you do it without using all kinds of weird Christian language and jargon. Maybe you just have a way uh, and would like to invite people to join you here at Jericho for one of our Christmas gatherings. Maybe Christmas Eve, maybe the kids' Christmas program on the 18th. Friends, we naturally tell other people about things in our lives that are wonderful. It's not weird. We're just helping hungry people know where to find the bread of life. And so we're going to move this morning into a time of communion. And we just finished studying in our fall teaching series together about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And one of the characteristics 
of the work of the Spirit in our lives is that He empowers and gives us boldness for witness. And so today, as you approach the communion table, I want to encourage you to take just a moment and ask God to stir up boldness and a specific instance and a specific maybe relationship or a specific person in your mind that you feel like God's putting on your heart that you want to tell about how wonderful your relationship with God is this Christmas season. Maybe for you, you're here in this place today and you say, this is all very new to me. When I hear people like Sandy and Muriel talk about their faith, when I hear people like Brad and Cheryl talk about wanting Rosie to grow up and come to a place of relating to Jesus in a personal way, this is all new for me. The notion of placing trust and hope and confidence and faith in Jesus and finding strength in him. Friends, you'll find here at Jericho a community of people who are learning to do that, not just as a one-time decision, but in an ongoing way to place our faith and confidence and trust in Jesus. But if for you, you've never started on that journey, the doorway is simple. Just come to a place in your life and pray and say, God, I'm here today and I want what these people have. I want to place my trust and hope and confidence in you. I want the salvation that you offer that you purchased for me by your life, by your death, by your resurrection. I need forgiveness for my sins. I need you to come into my life. I want you to be in charge, to fill those hungry parts of my soul with meaning. I believe that you are wonderful, and I want to know and experience that. And that prayer offered in faith today will transform and change your life. And so don't leave here today without praying that if that's your desire and your hope, if you feel a stirring in your soul and your spirit, you feel that something that Sandy or Muriel or someone has said today has just begun to stir that hunger in you, Jesus is the only one who can satisfy that because he's wonderful. Caitlin and Tammy and Chris and the worship team are going to come and lead us in songs of reflection and response. And Tyler and Lindsay are going to be available to serve communion at the one station. And Mike's going to be available to serve some of our youth at the second station. Here at Jericho, communion is a responsive action, by which we mean we have the stations here and available for you to come to the table and you take the bread or take the gluten-free option and take the grape juice, which represents Christ's blood shed for you. And you can take it to your seat and partake whenever you're ready. It's, this is not an exercise for people who are perfect or who have it all together in any way. Otherwise, none of us would ever come. This is a table for those who are hungry, for those who are thirsty. This is really a beggar's table, a table where we come to find the bread of life, to acknowledge our need for a wonderful and merciful Savior. And so we'll also have people available to pray with you. Pastor Wally and Sylvia will be available at this side. I'll be available over at the far side, and we would love to stand with you as a community, maybe to pray for you or for a loved one, maybe a prayer for healing, maybe celebrating together some aspect today of your relationship with God that you want to declare and say, Jesus is wonderful, and he's done something wonderful and amazing for me. So as the team leads us, let's stand together. When you're ready, you can move to the communion table. and Let me pray for us as we stand.